Hello, my tribe. This is uh, the afternoon session that I facilitated at the Seattle Winter Retreat. Um, I do need to say uh, that um, I uh, made a mistake um, in uh, presenting um, some outside literature. So, um, which I won't be doing again. It was sort of a gray line because um, in AA, so here was my reasoning. There was OA literature and I was told by John Kay that all um, AA conference approved literature is OA conference, conference approved literature, which I later found out is not true. OA uh, literature um, uh, only uh, the only AA conference approved literature that OA approves is the big book and the 12 and 12. And then in AA, uh, there's, you know, a bunch of books that I don't know if they're conference approved, but they're part of the recovery canon that are written by alcoholics or by members of Alcoholics Anonymous that are very popular and uh, that are sort of classic um, books to read uh, for recovery. And some of them are um, Drop the Rock or Dropping the Rock, New Pair of Glasses, Spirituality of Imperfection, um, Not God, uh, Healing the Shame That Binds You, and Brene Brown's I Thought It Was Just Me. So... Um, you know, and a, and a bunch of others, Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, The First 100, um, Living Sober. There are just all these books. Uh, I think even Dr. Paul has a book. So um, I sort of blurred the line there and included uh, the shame books in my shame presentation, which I should not have done. So um, I will not be doing that in the future. So I want to make sure that uh, even though you're listening to this um, podcast of me doing this shame presentation, um, in the future I will just uh, direct people to listen to my shame study podcast and not um, at a workshop or official um, OA event um, talk about uh, non-OA approved literature. Other than that, um, I hope that you enjoy... I don't know if I'd say the word enjoy. I hope that you get something affirming out of or um, something that you can identify with and feel maybe some relief from around this shame study workshop. Okay, love you guys. Bye. Um, so I want to thank Carrie uh, Car- and Diana because um, this was a last minute addition, but it's the one, it's the reason that I'm here. Um, is to do a shame study or is to carry the message around how shame um, affects our disease or actually shame is the root of our disease. So um, let's see, I, uh, this is a participation. So we're going to kind of, so does everyone have writing? So if you don't have any writing stuff, you're going to need writing. Um, so while you're getting all of that together, what I can tell you, I'm, I'm going to start to tell the story about how I got to leading these shame study things. So, uh, you know, I had that major relapse in 2006 and got that hardcore sponsor and got a hardcore um, uh, program and, you know, came out of relapse and, you know, Lots of stuff happened. The recession happened, which is, and then my best friend, who's like my sister, this is the foster family that took me in because of my crazy parents. So even though they're not officially my foster, like I'm here today and alive and breathing because this wonderful family took me in and literally sort of made me one of their own and introduced me as their daughter. Um, And so, and then they both died a month apart from cancer um, in 2018. So, um, so anyway, all of that is to say that she was up, my best friend was up here, the recession was happening, I wasn't getting a job, 
the city was exhausting me. I have um, adrenaline issues because of the PTSD. And I was like, I'm never leaving San Francisco. I'm going to marry the sidewalk. And you know what I mean? And But then the, the health issues happened, which is another reason why I need the space because I, I get very exhausted after doing these. And... Um, and Melanie was up here, and she said, why don't you come up here? And the funny thing is, I'll tell you guys the story. I said, well, you know, I'm covered in tattoos, and I knit, and I don't want to be stared at. Am I going to be okay up there? <laughs> She's like, yeah, you're going to be fine. Um, you know, and, uh, and so, I, so that's how I ended up here in 2009, and it took about a year, and then I did get a job, and, you know, and again, the very first thing I did when it became a real thing, moving, to, moving out of not just the Bay Area, but to come up to a whole name, is I went to the AA website for Portland, because I knew that that would be an indicator of all the other types of recovery program. So, um, however, I was, uh, I had a little bit of a hard time with coming up here because uh, uh, in the Bay Area, there were just a, was very strong OA and a lot of OA meetings. And so I just grew up really spoiled. Like it wasn't just, you know, there wasn't just one series of 7 a.m. meetings. It was which 7 a.m. meetings, you know, seven days a week were you gonna go to, you know, this side of town or that side of town? Were you gonna go to the 7 a.m. ones or the 7.30 ones? Were you gonna go to the 5.30 p.m. ones or the 6 p.m.? I mean, so just very, very spoiled. Um, and so, but anyway, so I come up here, I get out of that relapse, I'm sponsoring like crazy and doing service. Um, I come up, I get a job, like an amazing job with a mentor that was amazing. Um, I'm at goal weight. You know, um, and in 2014, uh, I basically, it was the summer, and I'll never forget this day, I was looking good, and I was feeling good, and I had an amazing job, and I had an, a good living situation, wasn't ideal, the one I'm in now is ideal, I was, um, I was basically had a studio and a house, so it wasn't, you know, but, and it was in the house, so it wasn't like it was off to the side, and um, but anyway, and I, uh, there were a couple of guys at work that I kind of, you know, I had a little crush on or whatever. And one day I was in the basement, um, you know, it was a big, huge building. The basement was where the mailroom was. And one of the guys that I had a kind of crush on, um, you know, when we're feeling good in our body, whatever sex we are, you know, people pick up on that. They're like, you're looking hot. And I'm like, I am looking hot. You know what I mean? Because I'm feeling hot. You know, and if it had been anybody else, I would have, whatever. But, um, but it was the guy that I was attracted to. And it's like, I don't know, I can't tell you the mechanism, but I can tell you that it was a Thursday. And the reason why I know it was a Thursday is because Friday night, I intentionally broke my abstinence. And... I could not stop myself from doing it. Now, how did I do it? I took a bite of jam that had sugar in it. I knew it had sugar in it. And I went to, like, not eat anymore. And instead, I took a big, huge bite. And I had more. And then the beast was awake. So there are some people, hopefully no one in this room, but people out there that are like, you had two bites of jam and you lost your abstinence? I'm like, yes. Number one, I did it on purpose. And number two, I woke the beast. And it was awake. Because all of a sudden, it was like, why am I breaking my abstinence on this homemade jam? You know what I mean? Let's, where are the keys? You know what I mean? Let's, and I was terrified. And I knew that I was going to go downhill. So fortunately, at that point, I had 13 years. If I, and I had a strong program. If I didn't. I would have ended up in that tr my truck, and I would have ended up at some sort of store. But through grace of having actually, I broke my abstinence enough to send me into a shame spiral and wake the disease. And fortunately, I had been um, in, I'm also in AA as a sugar addict, but also to make sure I don't become an alcoholic. I unfortunately learned the hard way not to introduce myself as an alcoholic because 
It's just, it's not good. So I introduced myself, and if you ever want to ask me about that, we, we can talk. But I introduced myself as a bulimic alcoholic. Like, believe me, it's like, yes, I'm here. I have this disease. It's not my first choice, but I could, I have that personality that would become an alcoholic. But um, I'm the designated driver in my family, so I'm a hardcore Al-Anon. Um, but anyway, so I was on the chair committee for the first um, Portland Area Women's Roundup, which happened to be that weekend. And it was Friday, and I had actually left the Portland Area Women's Roundup. To, I was house-sitting at the time, went home, and was, that's when the jam incident thing happened. My original plan was to just... Go Friday night because my friend Nadja was was the local speaker for Friday night, you know, and they had flown people in for the other. So I was like, okay, I'll go Friday night, you know, do that, listen to her, and then go and go to Melanie's and house it and everything. And that night, you know, I had the um, jam. Now here's the sort of divine timing of it was is that I immediately reached out you know, on text or whatever. And then I committed that first thing in the morning, I was going to go back to the conference. And I, I did not leave the conference because I knew like, this is not going to be good. I am now in super danger zone, super, super danger zone. Like, and I'm glad people are nodding their heads. Like this could go either way. Actually, I only think it's going to go one way. And I am, like, terrified now of, like, what the fuck have I done? But it's, it's like, you know, when people, oops, sorry, when you see movies or whatever, people make those fatal mistakes. And it's like, oh, what have I done? I'm sorry. It's like, well, sorry is not really working right now, you know. And so here's the grace piece. So I go, I spend all day there, and then Sunday morning they had a speaker, and she told my story. You know, she told my story, particularly around um, the sexual trauma and the different kinds of sexual trauma. And, um, and so I went up to her after the meeting, and I said, I'm desperate. And she said, great, I'll sponsor you. And then she said, I want you to go out, and I want you to buy the book, Healing the Shame That Binds You. I was like, okay. I went, I did it. And she and I only ended up working together for um, a month. It became pretty clear that I had more ther- or recovery than she did, um, and she was still active in some other it- diseases that I had. So that ended, but it ended well, you know what I mean? And, um, but it started uh, what I now, uh, it started a shame study for me. And so I, I read everything. And then what I did, because this is my personality, is, is that I started a shame study group, and I took two women through it just to kind of see, like, well, this worked for me. Is this going to work for you? And it did. And so, and now I've started two other shame study groups. And then if you go to my podcast, there's actually um, one of the podcasts there. I don't know what they're called, episodes, I guess. One of the episodes is how to do the shame study. So I'm not going to get into the details of how to do that. It's on, you can email me and whatever. But what I did was after, you know, reading one book, reading another book, reading the Hazleton booklet, is I took the Brene Brown shame inventory, and now I incorporate that into the fourth step. And what I'm really glad to hear about is that now retreat centers, you know, are incorporating uh, shame inventories as well as like the regular four-step, you know, anger, resentment, harms, sexual conduct. So I, what we're going to get to is we're going to collectively do... Um, I have it here. I just got to find it. Maybe it's in my bag. We're going to collectively do um, a shame. Uh, we're going to pick a category, and we're going to go through one together, you know, collectively as a group. Before we do that, um, I want to uh, sort of share. Well, no, let's let's start with that so we can get some writing in. Okay. Pass 
Oh, wait, I need one. (laughs) Thank you. So, um... There are a couple of of, uh, categories that um, some people struggle with. My thing is, is that uh, with my um, education in the rooms is not to say no to something, but find how you relate to it. So, you know, don't say like, well, that doesn't apply to me. Instead, say, you know, how could that apply to me? Or maybe if I reword that. So I don't throw anything away is what I'm saying. I try to find like, well, if this were phrased differently or if this were a different shape, how does that, you know, apply to me? So, for example, I'm not a parent, right? But I'm not going to throw away the parent parenting category because I don't want to lose the opportunity to understand something about myself, you know, and understand where I'm shamed. So I, I traded parenting for sponsoring, you know, um, there's another category, uh, motherhood, fatherhood. Again, seemingly doesn't apply, you know. Um, oh, no, I know it. I'm sorry. I did different. Parenting, I uh, was a pet owner. You know what I mean? And for people who have pets, you know that other pet owners, yes, there's that friendly piece, but then there's that, you know, your unruly pet, you know what I mean? And are you taking care of your pet? There's a lot of judgment so again, it's, it's, the point is, is that it's an area of life where humans are still humans and status and how and, you know, are you doing it right is still, you know, an aspect of it. And then the motherhood is the one where I did with, with sponsoring. So um, let's go ahead just because I want to make sure, you know, because I still have plenty to say about this topic, but I want to get a little interactive first as we sort of engage. So I thought we would start with appearance and body image um, because that's certainly relevant. So in doing the exercise, you guys got your pens and everything like that? All right, so collectively, what are some of the ideal identities that we want to be perceived? And we can split this apart if you want. We can do appearance and then we can do body image. But just for the sake, you can do that on your own. How about collectively we do it together? Okay, so appearance. I want to be perceived as healthy. Okay, so let's write that down. Fit. Fit. Okay. Health. How about healthy slash fit? You know, I sexy. I want to be perceived as sexy. That's great. Athletic. Athletic. Yeah, it's just an example. You know what I mean. Yeah? Capable. Capable. Mm. Now, you with your, okay, capable. I want to be perceived or able-bodied. Able-bodied. Okay, I think that's, because people don't, okay, so instead of capable, able-bodied. No, just capable, like, I'm capable to do things. In an appearance way? We're talking in your appearance. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. I'm not. (laughs) Okay, that's fine. I want to be perceived as put together. You know what I mean? Like my clothes, my appearance. You know what I mean? I want to be perceived as um, alluring. You know that I have a body that's alluring. Anything else? Maybe a low bar, but I want to look like I care. Okay. Yeah. You want to look like you, you care. There's a good phrase for that I can't think of it but yeah that you sort of care about yourself you know or maybe have a sense of pride or a sense of I work with five men and so strong okay I do physical things okay so you know fit strong maybe you can put those together whatever you guys want you know um, any other of how we want to be perceived so you want to have a, a sort of decorum about you, a presence? Right. Okay. I really want to get into the body image, the superficial. So make sure whatever you write down that that's what we're writing down. It's just, yeah. Okay. You want to be curvaceous? Yeah. Curvaceous or womanly? Okay. This is great. Beautiful. Beautiful. 
Yeah, I want to be perceived as beautiful. Skinny. Okay, skinny. Yeah. Younger. Younger. No, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Just attractive in general. Okay. So beautiful slash attractive, generally attractive, sexy, whatever. So the fun part about this part is that this is the part we don't do anything with. So we're just writing, but I think it's important for self for our self education that we get clear on, you know, as you noticed in just the group, how you heard things that it's like, well, that doesn't really matter to me or whatever. So again, in that step one, what is true? You know, basically at the end of the steps, you really, and as you do them over and over and over again, you want to become an expert on you. And here's why. So, or here's one of the reasons why. Like, I know myself now. I know that after I spend an hour and a half, you know, barring my soul to people, I can't have people come up because what I will do is I will disconnect in order to be able to socially engage when, in fact, I'm depleted. So I have had to learn that. And then we'll go have lunch and I'll eat too much. So, you know, that's an example of like, okay, you need to become an expert on you. So even though we're not going to do any writing on these, getting clear on what's important to you is still, is still really valuable. So now, let's get to how you do not want to be perceived in your um, appearance and body image. I don't want to be seen as weak, weak sloppy, lazy, lazy fat. fat Saggy, old, old, frumpy. That's a good one. I had that one too. Okay, so we only want, like, so out of all the ones we listed, because each one of this is quite a lot of writing, you want about three or four. Okay? So you can write as many as you want, but for your own sake, unless you love writing, and then if you love writing, you can do as many as you want. But for the rest of us, um, you know, I would do, you know, three hot ones, maybe four, you know, if you really want to get. So now let's pick which which are one of the ones that we said. Let's pick fat because we're here and, you know, it's kind of a universal. We, you know. All right. So um, what do these perceptions mean to me? So what does it mean if you're perceived as fat. No willpower. No You're weak. Come on, you guys. You're uneducated. You're uneducated. You're like this. More reminds me of being bullied. Boring? Bullied. I've been bullied. These terms have been used to bullying people. Oh, bullying. Sorry, I was like, bullied? <laughs> yeah. People would bully me. Yeah, bullied. Okay. So, yeah, what else does it mean to be fat? Devalued, right, less than, devalued. Um, why are these so unwanted? Why are all of those things? I know it sounds really basic, but this is like the fourth step. Like, you get into this. Why are these things so unwanted? Why do we care? No one's going to love me. No one's going to love me. Because we crave belonging. Right. Basic rejection. Instincts. Social rejection. Or our basic instincts. Yeah, basic instincts. Again, rejection. We're not going to be, no one's going to invite us into the party. You know, so basically what I wrote, my words were something like, um, it gives people a reason to kick me out. Or it gives people a reason to not want to connect with me. You know, and so I don't want 
anything that's going to give someone a reason to throw me out. Mm -hmm. I think, and also for some people, it can give ourselves a reason to not participate or to not engage with it. Sometimes we're trying to hide. Okay. So hold on just a second. Hold on to that one. That's a good one, but I. Okay, no, no, no. Why are they so unwanted? Oh, I thought you were saying. Oh. Yeah, okay, so hold on to that because okay. that's going to come back around. Um, so basically it's social rejection. That basically, you know, we're human beings. We need to connect. That's basically what we're driven to do. So we want to belong. We go to belong and we find and we hear and we learn all the things that will kick you out of belonging. And there are a lot of them, but we're in OA, and so we're talking about being fat, you know? And this is, again, there are a lot of things that feed bulimia, but just keep in mind that even if you're not appearing fat, if you think you're fat, you're carrying that story. You know, the fear of getting fat, the fear of whatever. Okay, now, where did these messages come from? Where did the messages that fuel this identity come from? My mom. My mom. Me too. Television. Television. Media. Media. My dad. Classmates. Boys. My dad. My dad. Boys. What was the other one? Boys. Boys. Girls. Girls. Yeah. Girls. You know, mean girls. Girls. Okay. So this is an example of how you take one category, you do fat one thing, and you get down to why, what, you know, how, okay, how, so this is the experience that I had. I'm over here, I'm doing the how I want to be perceived. And even in doing that, I could hear my dad. I could hear my mom. You know, where's your pride? Where's your pride? You're a sharky. Where's your pride? You know, and I could, so even as I was answering the questions, I was hearing, like, oh, yeah, like, here's the family, like, you know, if you're going to be in this family, here's how you need to front. You know? So that was, you know, illuminating for me. And then to say, like, well, how I don't want to be perceived. And just answering authentically how I don't want to be perceived. And then taking each one of those and being like, well, well, why don't I want to be perceived this way? Like, what's behind that? What's driving that? And in my instance, and, and you know, each sponsee that I've gone through with this, it's created a different kind of shape. And so what I mean by a different kind of shape is, is I'm a firm believer in the big book version of the fourth step, you know, which I have a whole other podcast on how to do it the big book way, and that to do it exhaustively, because when you do it exhaustively, you know, then each line that you have is a piece of data. And then that's, it's like, it's like a connect the dots picture. So every line that you write, like, oh, this characteristic, why don't I want to do this? It's a little dot. And then you start getting these dots. And then all of a sudden, it starts to connect, and you get this picture of basically what is the shape and flavor of the shame that is driving you. And that's what the shame inventory will reveal to you. And where are you getting these messages? Like, yes, a lot of them I absolutely got from social you know, or, you know, the media, magazines, television. That's why I'm saying, you know, I, I came from a broken family growing up in a broken culture. No doubt. But for each one of us, we have certain family messages. Now, on some level, macroly, we could be like, well, you have to look good and you have to represent the family well. Like, we could all be, like, nodding our heads on that. But when we get down to, and how do you do that? You know what I mean? How do you, like, I remember, you know, when my parents were doing well, like, we would never shop at Target. I mean, no, you don't do that. I mean, it was Macy's or Nordstrom's. Do you know what I mean? So it's like labels were so important, you know, because again, you know, that's just that sort of family story. There were certain things that it was like, you know, you didn't wear white after fucking whatever. I mean, I can't even remember. You know what I mean? But they were just like, oh, you don't do that. You know, oh, no, you don't do that. Like, you don't leave the house unshowered with no makeup. Like, that was my family. Thankfully, Melanie's family took me in, and they didn't understand that. 
of the, the inventory, of doing the actual inventory piece. Now, the other part of this is um, to do the reading, to do the reading. And, you know, I, the, the book that I, The Healing the Shame That Binds You, that's John Bradshaw. He's in AA. Um, it's a classic AA book. Uh, here's what I like about that book. It's kind of like the big book. It's dated, but because of the way that he thinks and because of the field that he's in, it's very structured for you and it's very academic. So he really goes into using his case studies how intergenerational shame is passed on from one generation to another. And he really goes into how shame affects children at different age levels. So it's very revealing. So I think that's good. My personal recommendation, again, this is in the podcast if you find it, is that book was written in 1988. And even though he did a revised 2012, which I also read, for the purposes of the book study, you don't need to read the third section. So you read the first section and the second section. The third section is basically, you know, what do you do about it? Personally, I'm like, we have gotten so far advanced that that book's a little dated on the solution piece. So I think you read the first two sections the way that people would tell you to read the first 164 pages in the big book. And then if you want to read the, the, the personal stories, you can. But very similarly, you read the first two sections um, of the healing the shame that binds you. There's also a pamphlet, which is on my drive, um, called Shame Faced um, by... Oh, I can't remember her name. But anyway, it's a Hazleton, you know, and so you read that and that really ties in um, the shame and how it relates to addiction and recovery. And then we get to sorry, fellows, but um, Bella's. Then we get to the I thought it was just me, you know, Brene Brown's um, Women in Shame. I personally think that men need to read that book. You know, I think that this, there's definitely sometimes gender differences, absolutely, and we need to honor those because the world treats us differently. But I think in terms of emotional intelligence that it's still a really good book. However, her next book, Daring Greatly, um, does include more men. But the I Thought It Was Just Me specifically talks about women and shame and how we're shamed. And so it is more of a feminist issue. So I would definitely... And then... You know, to do that together in a group is just as intense as doing the four step. It'd be like if you did the four step together in a study group, you know, and and the reason why that's so powerful is because, again, if you do it in a group, then people will start to say things that you hadn't even thought of. And then you have this resonance. But at the same time, the antidote for shame is empathy. And so you have someone nodding their head at you. So even though you're feeling a sense of shame about something and whatever, all, you're looking at someone who's nodding and, and in the nod saying, yeah, me too. And it eradicates some of the shame. Okay? So the rest of this is just purely my opinion. I'm not an expert. I certainly don't have a PhD. I just have my experience that since I did the shame study, it was a game changer for me. And basically what happened for me is that I had to look at, so after I ate that jam and I called my sponsor, because I had checked in the day before about feeling really sexy and feeling so great and how great my life is, and then the next day she gets a call from me about how I broke my abstinence, you know, and so what, when we met the next time, she said, when I got your voicemail when you broke your abstinence, I just thought, wow, she's not going to let herself have it. And that was the phrase that just really hit me. Like, I'm just not going to let myself have recovery. I'm not going to let myself have the gifts of this program. And so for me to be at that time introduced to the shame study and the shame book was, was paramount. 
So my experience with that and what I've learned is that shame, my sense of shame. Now, I come from, my grandfather was a colonel in the Air Force. And so my dad was the son of the colonel, right? And if you're not familiar with that, what I basically told you is that my dad was the son of a duke. So, and so I want you to think about that in terms of sense of narcissism and entitlement. And again, being a sharky, right? So my, I come from a, the, the school of, of arrogance. I was, I was not a doormat. I was not passive. I was not whatever. I had a temper. Like I took after my dad. My dad has a temper. You know, basically I grew up with my mom and my dad as models. You know, and my mom was, she's funny, and she gave me my sense of humor, and because of her, I love music and dance, and she's artistic and everything, but she deferred to my dad, and she put up with being talked to in a way that I would never allow anyone to talk to me. And so, and also, you know, it's different kinds of alcoholism, and basically for my mom, I was a resource for her. You know, so I was something that was supposed to support her. She didn't actually ever see me, so I didn't really want to see my mom. So I really model after my dad. Also, my mom's an extrovert, my dad's an introvert, so there are all these reasons. So in doing my shame inventory and looking at arrogance, what I had to look at was, well, I have to feel like I'm better than you because I can't feel like we're the same I can't put myself like this. This is doing inventory work, you know, working with a sponsor and therapy and everything. Because if we're the same, I actually feel less than. Like, it's only if I feel above that I actually feel safe. If we're eye to eye, then suddenly I get these feelings of insecurity and like, like that we're not peers. And that's when I discovered, it took a long time because I couldn't identify with these, you know, feeling less than. I was like, I don't have those feelings, you know what I mean? But, um, but I don't want anyone to get to know me, you know, but I don't have those feelings, you know what I mean? So, and it's true, like I didn't have those feelings, I just wouldn't let anyone get to know me too well because then you might discover that I'm broken or that I'm less than. And I love the phrase less than whoever said that because that's the phrase that made sense to me. You know, shame is this sort of topic and I get it and I know what it means now, but it's the concept of being less than. So basically, one of the ways that I describe it is it's like if you go into a shop, you know, and there's the, all this beautiful whatever, and you can imagine anything in your mind, and it's a beautiful store, and you go into the shop, and then at the back, you know, they have their shelf of 50% off, you know, with a beautiful item that is a little bit defective. It's a little bit broken. It is less than. It is worth less than the beautiful items up at the front of the store. And so that was something, that's shame. You know, that somehow, because of my character defects or because of my eating disorder, my addiction, because of coming from an adult child or being an adult child of two alcoholic parents, because of being sexually abused, because of being neglected, all of those messages tell me that I'm not one of the beautiful items in the front of the store because those beautiful items in the front of the store are polished and dusted and overpriced. You know what I mean? I'm in the back of the store in the clearance rack where, you know, they're practically just they're just trying to pay for their overhead, you know. So how I made up for that, you know, that core sense of identity was to then mirror what, you know, which my dad, now I understand that my dad has the same thing, but of course he's not in recovery. So, you know, um, is it's like, oh, well, I'm actually going to think of myself as those items in the front window. And so then my identity is going to be that, you know, I'm priced that high because I'm somehow worth more than you. So it creates this, you know, safety mechanism. But what happens there, and I'm doing that mechanism because I'm actually, this is a step one issue, I don't want to think of myself as less than. I'm like, no. You know what I mean? And also, I've got certain people in my life, like my dad, telling me that I'm better than that. You know what I mean? You're smarter than that. You're better than that. 
you, you know, you can do that. Those people can't, but you can. So again, that sort of, you know, mixed messages around, you know, whatever. But in the items in the front of the store, I have to, you know, sell that to myself that I'm a little bit better than. Now, what does that mean, though? I mean, I have to tell you, like, it's so crazy fucking making because I've brainwashed myself in order to hide my core identity of feeling less than. I, you know, have this identity that's arrogant, that's like, I'm the smartest person in the room. I work the hardest in the room. I'm the hardest worker in my office. I'm the one that really understands what's going on. I'm the one that whatever. And then I've got people, and oh, I'm the most capable. You know, that's another one. People come to me and ask me. So then I get, you know, people who are like, oh, you know, can you do this for me? You're so capable. I am so capable. Thank you. You know what I mean? And I keep these dynamics, you know, and it's the office worker where it's like, well, just give it to Nicole. She'll figure it out. And I will figure it out. Just, you know, get, I mean, all of these little things, you know, the friend that all your friends call you, you know, because you're the unlicensed therapist, you know what I mean? Like, whatever. I mean, all of these little things where it's like you've got people sort of affirming that it's like, you're so great. I am so great. Thank you for affirming that. Now, here's the problem. If, if that's what I'm selling, I can't actually know that that's not how I really feel, which means I can't reveal the truth to myself. And anything that confronts this, you know, privately defined world that I've created for myself, I will in my mind, you know, twist around to it's like, like, let's say I have an interaction with someone who tries to tell me that I'm arrogant. I'm like, no, I'm not. You know what I mean? You're an idiot. And you know what I mean? So then I like in my so anyone who tries to confront or like I'll have that person say that and then I'll go find someone and say, you know, so and so said that I was arrogant. What do you you know? Oh, you're not arrogant. Oh, you sh- you know, she's going through a divorce right now and I wouldn't be surprised if I now I now I know why she's going through a divorce and I'm like, yeah, that's probably why she's going through it. You know what I mean? Like that character assassination thing. And I'm being kind of comical here, but you get how like I have to kind of create this reality, this false reality in my mind in order to keep this false identity going. And so it's a painful process. And and, and that's again where the food works and the disease works because I need that disassociation. I need it. So the disease, because what happens when I put the food down is that the truth of me starts to like want to come out. You know, I've got these wounded parts of me that are like, you have been ignoring me your whole fucking life. Like I have stored, you know, hurts and feelings, low self-esteem, whatever, and they don't go away. You know, I'm just hauling them around with me, but I don't know that they're there. But what will happen is someone will want to get close to me and I'll distance. And I'll distance because I'll be like, and that doesn't, I mean, you can be in the room with me and we can be hugging and cuddling and whatever. But actually, I'm not letting you know too much about me, you know, because I can't have the truth revealed because I'm, it's called impression management. I'm trying to manage my impression, the impression that I'm making on you. And so if I'm trying to maintain this, you know, storefront window, I'm super quality, super smart, super capable, super whatever, and I have to be that all the time. Now, mixed in with that, of course, is perfectionism, right? Which is all shame. You know, because I'm because I feel less than, I now have to overcompensate and be the best, let's just say Vaz, right? In this wonderful store that you guys imagined, in one of those little corners, they sell vases. And they're extremely expensive, except for the one that's defective, which is on sale in the back. And they won't even put it in the window because the store doesn't even want to admit that they carry defective items, right? Well, one of those vases is like, it's the best, it's a unique, and it's signed by the artist or something like that. And it's like, it's the most perfect example of that boss ever. And I'm like, okay. That's the boss that I have to be. I have to drive myself to be that boss. And that will somehow prove 
to the world and to me that I am not defective, that I am not less than. And then in that comes, I have to look a certain way, I have to dress a certain way, I have to have certain kinds of friends, I have to have certain kinds of relationship, and no one fucking gets that. Like, no one gets to just put their order into the universe and just be like, here's a perfect life, here's my order, give me my number, I'll wait until it's up, right? So... Another sort of analogy that I use around that, around the shame piece, is like, uh, I think of it as a theater club. And it's like being or a small theater, you know? And I go to the theater, and I want to be the leading actress or leading actor, you know? And I feel like that's the role that I should be. Because, again, I'm driven by the less than. So I have to be the star of the show because in being the star of the show, it reassures me that I'm not defective, right? So that's why I need it. I can't be a side character because side characters don't reassure me that I'm not defective. All of a sudden, if I'm a side character, I have, I have a feeling of like all of a sudden the feelings come up. You know, it's kind of like if you question if you're smart, like you need the A+. Plus. You need like some sort of stamp that says, yes, you're smart. Like if you get a B plus, you're like, well, no one's going to gasp at a B plus. You know what I mean? So I need the A plus and then that'll prove to the world that I'm smart. Like if you need that. So life is like I come into the theater and there's God going like, okay, here's your role. And I'm playing Nicole Sharkey and I'm not. You know, I don't know. I'm not Bill Gates. I'm like, what the fuck is this? I'm not I'm not playing this role. But life keeps going. You know what I mean? So it's like I have to wake up in the morning. I have to get dressed. I have to go out and play this character. But she's not the star of the show. And so I'm struggling. And this is where the life is unmet. Like, how can I make myself the star of the show? How can I, like, create the ego dream? You know, get the job, get the friends, get the whatever. How can I, like, do this? And it's just not happening. Do you get what I'm saying? And so I'm waking up every morning, and on some level, consciously or not, I'm like, I don't want to play Nicole Sharkey. This is not how I want things to be going. I don't want to be this character. At the same, Am I making sense? Yeah. Okay. You know what I mean? And so all of that feeling of, like, the less than... I don't want to be this character. This is all shame. And this is all that's like in my body that I'm living with every day. And how am I supposed to to deal with that? Well, how I deal with it is I disassociate from it. It's kind of like if I've got this, you know, amp back here, you know, doing this crazy feedback that's distracting me from my performance. I got to fucking turn the amp off. You know, well, how do I do that? I disassociate. How do I disassociate? I engage in some sort of addictive behavior. That's how I do it. I get out of my body and I get into your business. I get out of my body, I get super busy. I get out of my body and I eat. I get out of my body and I drink and do drugs. Like I have to disconnect from myself. And so for me, my whole journey in recovery since 1993, so before OA, has been about coming back into my body, coming back into being Nicole Sharkey and into waking up in the morning and wanting to play this character exactly as she's scripted with the family that I have and the friends that I have and the job that I have and the character um, assets that I have and the character challenges that I have. And just to be okay with being a human being. Well, the only way that I'm going to feel that way is if I don't feel less than. Because the less than is what's driving me to overcompensate and perform and strive for some sort of, you know, sex in the city lifestyle, which is ridiculous. You know what I mean? I didn't even watch that show. I like watched one episode and I'm like, I don't know anyone like this. You know what I mean? And given how much you just spent on those shoes, I wouldn't know anyone like this in New York. You know what I mean? Like, so, but anyway, so that's the whole shame piece. So now here's my other understanding of, of shame. So I sort of broke it out into how shame plays into 
how I want to disconnect and whatever. Here's the other thing that I learned in doing the shame study. Where there is addiction, there is shame, which is another way of saying all that I just explained to you. It's like if you play detective and you do the math and you go back. Addiction, again, it's the emotionally regulating using a thing. You know, well, why am I choosing a thing instead of a person? Right? Why am I doing that? Not all of us have trauma. So, you know, for those of us who have trauma, we're like, well, I have trauma and I don't trust anybody. Well, yeah, okay. But even if, you know, and they say that everyone has experienced some sort of traumatic behavior. It's just all about how each person has been able to, um, the resiliency and the recovery from that. Some people have been able to recover from it because, you know, there were resources there to help them recover. And then some of us, there were no resources. And so we just had to disassociate and go on and pretend like nothing was wrong. And then, so then we have this, you know, it's called complex PTSD. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. So anyway, so... There I am, I'm having feelings, so I'm repeating myself, but I'm kind of bringing the two together. I'm having feelings. I, what I need to do in order to take care of my feelings is I need to connect to someone. Now, as soon as that drive kicks in, that means I have to show someone who I am. Well, if I'm doing this thing over here, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't show you who I am because it's not in alignment with the image of myself that I'm trying to, sh- to sell to the world. Or it's not in alignment with the image of myself that I have, you know, believed, you know, the lie that I have told myself. Another thing it's called, there was someone in recovery who called it, you know, believing the lie. You know, like I have to sell this lie to myself that everything's fine, everything's all right, I'm super capable and whatever. So... When I'm having that moment, then the shame kicks in, right? And so where there is addiction, there is shame. I know I'm kind of, to be honest, I'm getting a little tired, but is that? Okay. Is there anyone who doesn't at least understand the math that I just broke down there? Okay, great. So when we are doing recovery, we are doing Shame healing work. So that when someone in a circle or someone in a meeting says something raw and vulnerable and it hits you and you have that like, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. And then you get a, and so then there's that empathy thing. And that little piece of shame starts to heal. But again, if you think about it, if you've been out in the world getting shrapneled, I like the idea of shrapnel because, you know, it's, it's not just pulling a bullet out and then you're cured. It's like, no, it's pulling these pieces out. And every time you pull a piece of shrapnel out of your heart, you get some healing there. And then you have a greater capacity to have love. And then you have a, when you have a greater capacity to love, you have a greater capacity to connect. You know? And the first person you have to connect with is yourself. You cannot give away what you don't have. So coming into your body and connecting to who you are and the truth of who you are and loving yourself has to happen first. And as a sponsor, I feel that that's my job when I'm doing 12-step. And how I know that a person will heal from the shame is they have to go to the meetings because they have to be in the church of Me Too. They have to feel and see that they're not the only ones. That it's, you know, that their story is, even though the details may be different, someone else may have that story. Even if the story is completely different, someone else is describing their feelings about an incident that the other person can identify with. Does that make? Okay, so what I'd like to do, this ends at five, right? Okay, so what I really want to do is I want to sort of open it up for, um, we can open it up for questions. Um, or if people want to share, what do you guys want to do? Both. Okay. Uh, let's start with questions. Does anyone have? Okay, questions. Yeah. 
Okay, so the first book is Healing the Shame That Binds You, which is in, because uh, John Bradshaw's in AA, and he tells his AA story in the book. And so it's sort of a gray line there in terms of conference-approved literature, but it's Healing the Shame That Binds You by John Bradshaw. There's a 2012 edition, which I would recommend, um, just in terms of pay, uh, saving yourself some time. Just read the first two sections. <clears throat> and then go to, uh, you know what, I might actually have that wrong. Okay, let me say this. There's the Hazleton booklet, which I think comes before. I, I read them according to publication date. The Shame booklet, Shame Faced, is on my G drive. You can also order it from Amazon. It's like 12 pages. It's a, pam- it's a little booklet type thing, and it's a really great, you know, after this class, you guys are going to be like, you know, but it's a really great thing to have in your library, and it's really concise and ties in shame and addiction and recovery. And then you have the John Bradshaw, where it really breaks down how shame affects child development and how intergenerational shame, and then all of the different oop, all of the different things that can cause shame. Like it can kind of get kind of heavy, which is why you want to do it in a group and do a because you need that me too, me too, me too all the time. So, and just so you know, I do this with when people are in their fourth step. I usually start with anger because women don't have permission to be angry. As soon as we get angry, we're labeled shrew or bitch or ball buster or anything like that. And so what I do is I start with the anger inventory where women just get to say what they're angry about without looking at their part. First, they just get to say what they're angry about. I listen. I'm like, yeah, I'd be fucking pissed about that too. And then we go into what's their part. And then we do the other um, inventories. And then we end with the shame study. And then that's, like I said, that's the reason why I'm here as this is sort of my thing is like, hopefully you guys will do that. And then you will start passing that on. Because I really do think that one of the reasons like people leave the rooms or people chronically relapse is they won't let themselves have recovery. And there's nothing 12-step can do about that. Like if you are sabotaging your own recovery, if you turn – it's like someone said, oh, God feels far away from me. And someone else said, well, who moved? You know what I mean? Like God didn't move. So, you know, it's it's – I think it's – an epidemic and we need to address it and we are I don't even want to say fortunate enough but we have the opportunity that because our addiction brought us into recovery to actually deal with this stuff whereas you know I've got family members where they're they think they're fine and I'm like you know because they've just acclimated to the chaos and they've acclimated to this dysfunction you know um, and then the um, Brene Brown, I thought it was just me. You know, um, there's also, she's also got a, uh, if you want to sort of augment that on Sounds True, she's got um, Men, Women, and Worthiness. It's a two hour um, talk. And I think that's good because she does the men and the women. But in terms of a book study, do the I thought it was just me. You know, because then she goes into each category of all of these different categories around how that affect. Okay, any other questions? Yes? Can shame lead to someone being suicidal? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't, I personally, and again, all I have is my experience, including um, being suicidal and sponsoring people who are either suicidal or have felt suicide, you know, or suicidal ideation. My suicide wasn't that I was going to go kill myself. My suicide was that if I heard someone had a fatal disease, I was angry. I was like, where's my fatal disease? You know what I mean? Why do I have to keep living? Why do I have to keep doing this recovery? You know, I would get jealous around people who died in car crashes. I would get jealous. I was like, they get, they get a ticket out, you know, and I have to wake up and do this, you know. So I haven't met anyone with, you know, addiction is, is self-harm. That's what we're choosing to do, you know, in comforting ourselves. At some point it worked, and then it crossed a line, you know, and that's when it started to become self-harming behavior. And we kept doing it because now we're in an addiction pattern. 
you know, if you really believe that you're worthy and that you're valuable, you're not afraid to connect to people. And so when you need to emotionally regulate, you're going to call someone. It's only if you don't believe that, that you're not going to connect with someone. But you've got all these feelings that you have to deal with. So now, you know, you've got to figure out a way to deal with them. So you're going to emotionally regulate using some sort of external thing. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yes. Thank oh, okay. Any other? Qu- yes. So if, if something happens and you um, get triggered, you know, you, you realize you're feeling shame. Yeah. So what I think I just heard you say is that part of the answer then is to share that with someone. Immediately. Right? Immediately. And what else? You, know, you keep using the term self that we do this to to emotionally regulate. What does that mean? I know. That's the new buzzword. Emotionally regulate. Um, so basically, it means that, like, so something happens, I get triggered. My emotions are now out of whack. They're off balance. So I think maybe there are some mechanical people are in here that regulate means to bring things back to equanimity. Is that right? So the new thing around... You know, and it's just, it's an old concept, but the new phrase is emotionally regulate. So something happens, I get upset, I get sad, I get angry, I get frustrated. And to get myself back to center, which is where I want to be, now the healthy way to do that is through connection to someone else. You would go to your mom, you would go to your best friend, you would go to your partner, and you would process your feelings. You would get validation. You would not be shamed for your feelings or judged for your feelings or whatever. You would be listened to, mirrored, reflected, that your feelings are worthy and valuable. And then you would find your way, you know, and you wouldn't be, someone wouldn't come at you trying to like fix you or rescue you from your feelings. It's like, no, you're fe- given what just happened to you, the emotional, re- and I say this all the time. I say, you're having an appropriate emotional response. I say that to my sponsors all the time. They're like, well, I'm, I'm like, yeah, you're having an appropriate emotional response. This is what recovery looks like. This is what life looks like. You have to learn how to be okay with feeling uncomfortable. You have to learn how to be sad, be angry, be without acting out. And the way that we do that is through connecting with other people. And also to give ourselves permission to connect. And that's the shame piece is like, well, I can't call this person. This thing is so like, you know, I, I you know, they... They didn't give me a nickel when I asked for five pennies. I'm really upset about that. I can't talk to anyone about that. It's like, well, if it's making you upset, it's probably historical. You know what I mean? You don't need to know that. But the point is, is like something that small, you know, it's like, no, if it's activating you in some way, call someone. And you can say, this sounds really silly, but man, this really bothered me. And then you get to like, why does it bother? Well, I didn't feel heard. I thought it was very clear in asking for five pennies. I don't want a nickel. I want five pennies. I have a little nephew that collects pennies. And can't you just give me fucking five pennies? You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. And, and you're so it's same small. But when you talk it out, you realize like, well, it reminds me of this, you know. And then, you know, and when I would ask for something, I just wouldn't get what I asked for. And it just made me feel like I'm not worthy of being heard or whatever. And then you get to what it is. And then it's like. Oh, okay. Then the next time it happens, you're you're like, oh, no, excuse me, I I asked for five pennies. You know, and then you get it back and you're like, oh, and then you call someone and I told them, no, I asked for five pennies. And they were like, and they gave me five pennies and they looked at me weird, but I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, I spoke up for myself. You know what I mean? Like, does that make, so does that answer the emotional? Yeah. Okay. So, and when we don't have that, then we're just left alone with feeling activated and with all these feelings. And yet we've got to function. Maybe we've got kids that we got to, we can't, you know, and so now we go into problem solving. Well, how can I, you know, I'm going to numb out. I'm going to disassociate. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to do, now we go into any of our addictive behaviors and those feelings never get processed. And guess what? They don't go away. They don't go away. 
So I want to make sure you guys have time to share if you want. So is there any more questions? Okay, great. Um, is there anyone that would just kind of like to? So I'm kind of on the fence about whether I'm going to stay for whatever reason. I'm really tired this weekend. It's part of the health issues that I'm dealing with. I, I kind of want to So I'm going to see how I feel after. So I'll either, you know, be with you for dinner or I won't. Um, I just want to say that uh, before we get into the sharing, like, thank you for Carrie for inviting me to come and speak and Diana. And um, when you see Nicole, I'm sorry I didn't co-facilitate, but I was wiped out. And this is very important to me. So if even if you got a little thing out of this, it means the world to me. You know, it, it really does. Um, because, again, I have a life today. And I have a sense of love for myself and for I have gratitude for the life that I have. And I couldn't imagine today breaking my abstinence because I couldn't imagine doing that to myself. And the life that I have today is a direct result of 12-step recovery. And what I can tell you is as an incest survivor and a child of two alcoholic parents, all of which were results of alcoholism, Every fucking thing that alcoholism has stolen from me, recovery has given back tenfold. Everything. And I, I yeah. <laughs> so I really am the poster child for this. And I'm just really happy and grateful to be here. So thank you.